Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. You know what I think really helps people is failure. If you go through life succeeding in everything, you're not going to think that you need to change. Expert power is um, you're pretty smart, and referent power is you're great to work with. So if you're if people think you're pretty smart and they think you're great to work with, then you've got some pretty strong human capital that you can draw on when you want to create change. I'm giving you tools, but the tools can be used for good or not good. You know, a hammer can be used to fix something, or it can be used to hurt someone. You can only offer these tools and hope that the right person uses them for yeah. good. Hello, and welcome to episode twenty-seven of Trium Connects. Over the last several decades, more and more leadership research has highlighted the need for leaders to create an environment where disparate and very diverse opinions and approaches can be harnessed in a way to increase the quality of decisions. Much of this addresses what I think of as the demand side of the equation. That is, how can a leader create the environment where people feel that they have the right permission structure to contribute to or even openly question and con contradict a leader's position. However, this leaves open the what I would like to think of as the supply side of the equation. That is, how do we instill in people the self-belief and the confidence and importantly kind of socially strategic approaches to make themselves willing to speak up and to be heard and seen? In this episode, we discuss the challenge of upwards influence. That is, what are the challenges we face when we seek to influence people with more power than we have? And in general, this kind of supply side of the equation of a diversity of opinions coming into our decision-making process. My guest is Constant Chow Locke. In 2021, Constant published a book addressing these issues entitled Making Your Voice Heard, How to Own Your Space, Access Your Inner Power, and Become Influential. Constant is a professorial lecturer of management at the LSE, where she has won multiple teaching awards for her classes on leadership, organizational behavior, and negotiation and decision-making. Prior to entering academia, Constant was a regional training and development manager for the Boston Consulting Group, where she was responsible for training and development across 10 offices in the Asia-Pacific region. She has a PhD from Berkeley, and she did her undergraduate work from Harvard. In our discussion here, we discuss the role of confidence in perceived expertise, how power and influence can only be defined in the context in which they occur, and how being influential is often the endpoint of long and carefully executed preparatory strategy, how women face specific challenges from an agentic model of leadership, and how strategically one needs to think of cultural lenses when interacting with individuals. I have to apologize. The audio quality on my side of this recording is not so great. I was on the road when we recorded this conversation and I didn't have access to my normal recording kit. So my apologies for that. Now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Consen Locke. Consen Locke, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, I really enjoyed your book, and, and we're going to concentrate a lot on your book. It's called Making Your Voice Heard, 
but I hope that it'll be a start of conversations that will go off who knows where. Um, but uh, before we get into the content, you tell a lot of uh, really interesting stories about yourself in the book. I won't give away some of the more uh, hilarious stories I thought about, uh, uh, well, anyway, well, we won't go there, but uh, I think it's really, really fun. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get interested in the topic? How'd you end up at the LSE? Give our listeners a little bit of background. Sure. So um, this book is very close to my heart. So it's called Making Your Voice Heard. And I feel like I spent most of my life not making my voice heard. In fact, kind of stifling my voice. So I'm Chinese American. I grew up in Connecticut and um, I had immigrant parents who were very strict. You know, anyone who has Asian parents will know that they can be quite authoritarian. Um, and so I never really was encouraged to make my voice heard. And I never really tried to do it until later on in life, I realized, um, this was when I was working at the Boston Consulting Group as their regional training manager. I realized that it's actually important professionally to be able to speak up. Um, and in fact, it was the senior people at BCG that asked me to create a training program called Upward Management. And of course, this was out in Hong Kong. So I was, I was the regional training manager for Asia. So there were a lot of people who had backgrounds like me who were kind of quiet and not wanting to, not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to argue with people who had more power than they were, you know, being deferential. And the senior people being Western were saying, wait, this isn't working. We need people mm. to kind of, one, one partner actually said, I need my um, project leaders to be my sparring partners. You know, we wanna argue, we wanna get to the, to, to the best outcome for the client. And so I designed this training program, but what interested me the most was that this was an issue, like this was not just my issue. This was a widespread issue. And when I taught it, I got a mixed reaction. I got about half of the group saying, yeah, this is, this is useful, I can do this. And the other half saying, are you kidding? Do you want me to get fired? You know, this is a right. career limiting move. <laughs> right. And I was like, no, 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 but your bosses said they want you to speak up. They want you to argue back. And they were like, yeah, no, you know, maybe they said that, but then they don't really mean it. And so I just got even more interested in this. And when I, after BCG, I went to do the PhD and I ended up studying this whole topic of, it's it's often called employee voice. I have given it the name upward influence because it's influencing up the hierarchy. And so what I've done in the book is I've tried to pull together a whole bunch of research that um, helps people think about how do you how do you influence upward? How do you influence people who have more power than you do? Well, I think it's a really super interesting and relevant topic. I, I teach a lot of um, international corporates. And, and one of the things, as you say, we hear over and over again, uh, particularly uh, when, with operations in Asia, is simply, you know, we, we try to put in participatory decision making. We try to include people in the decision. Um, and nobody wants to say anything until they, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one of the things I recommend people, for example, is never give your opinion before uh, you ask somebody else their, their opinion, yeah. which is which is fine in practice. And it really works really, really well until you have somebody say, well, I'm operating in China. And if I did that, there would be like a five minute silence where everybody looked at each <laughs> <Exactly>. other. 
and no one's going to say anything. Um, yeah. And and afterwards they'll say, and afterwards they'll complain uh, about me as a, the quality of me as a leader because I'm not actually mm -hmm. leading. And so there, I I think it's a, such an interesting and important topic, particularly now that we know that uh, the only the, the kind of gateway to improving our decision making is including variability variability in our in our inputs exactly and without that without that we're we're in real trouble um yeah. so it's a super important book and i think i think it's it's really interesting to read and um and i i look forward to talking to you about it so you you divide the book into into sections and i and i thought maybe it'd be a good way for us to kind of think about it mm -hmm. um the the first part of the book is called kind of the face you show to the world, and and in this part, you talk a lot about kind of um, what we can do as individuals to become more, not just noticed but heard. You talk a lot about the the confidence, and and I think what you're trying to do in the in this first part is is just show or say that confidence is seen. It's super important, particularly when people don't know how deep your expertise is. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me a little bit like a lot of the tips in this part of the book were kind of like for when you just first meet someone or where someone's mm -hmm. not too sure about you. Is is do I do I have that right? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. This is um so if I were to write the book again, I would reverse parts one and two because the way I talk about it now when I when I present is I, I think about three concentric circles. And the, the first one, the smallest circle is the inner self. And that's your internal confidence, resilience, you know, um, reputation, all of these things. The second layer, the second concentric circle is the face you show the world, which are the external tools. So it's things that you learn in like presentation skills training. It's how you hold yourself, your your body language, your facial expression, how you dress, as well as some, you know, the way you frame your words, how do you phrase things? Um, and these are all tools. So the tools are essentially, um, and so that's that's part one that in the book, okay. um, are things that you can pick up and use right away. Whereas the the first circle, the inner self is stuff that you develop over time, like a muscle. Okay. Um, and then the third circle is the social context, which is the cultural context and gender bias and all of that. Okay. I, I mean, uh, we're going to get into those second parts of the, the or the two circles, mm -hmm. which I, for my reading, that's when the book really comes alive and starts to zing. And, um, but I, I want to, I just want to go back a little bit to the confidence part because mm -hmm. it really struck me um, when I'm dealing with leaders what what I often have to do is like try to rein in their confidence, right? Mm, and try and yes. and you have you have this kind of thing where and and you point out the research, which is in some ways you you take it a, from a point of view is it's a good thing, right? When you you yeah. need to be confident, you need to hold your body in a certain ways, you need to be able to kind of make space for yourself, particularly when people don't know you because they they will conflate confidence with expertise. Mm -hmm. And Definitely, we want to have people be heard. Absolutely. But I guess a, a separate question, when should we not have people be confident? When, mm -hmm. when, when is it a good yeah. thing not to be confident? Because we can yeah. create this kind of illusion of expertise because we're certain. And, and I think of politics now, I mean, yeah. and leadership, politics with a small p, both, both in the public sphere, but in, in companies as well. We've all been around people that like, 
talk super confidently and you're like wow there's no uncertainty mm -hmm. there and and we they must know what they're talking about but they don't mm -hmm. it's you know and and as th as things become more inherently kind of uncertain it seems like sometimes we really need leaders to say look i i'm not confident at all i i don't know mm -hmm. what's going to happen here I, I i don't know what do you think is it yes. is it two sides of the same coin it is absolutely. So one of the things, whenever I teach leadership, I say the one skill, like the, the core element of being a good leader is being able to adjust to the situation that you're in. So if you are, let's say you're in a decision-making um, discussion with one of your subordinates, you don't want to be looking too confident. You're going to stifle them. They're going to be like, oh, you know what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm just not going to say anything. If you're presenting to the board of directors, you need to look confident. Um, if you're in a job interview, you need to look confident. So there are times when you need it and times when you don't. Okay. Um, and a good leader, uh, so, you know, someone who is influential knows when to turn it on and when to turn it down. There's also, however, um, a warning that I often give which is that um, narcissists are really good at looking confident. Indeed. And so, <laughs> you know, we need to protect ourselves. This is a tool that you can use to make people more willing to listen to you, but it's also something that you need to protect yourself against um, so that if you're meeting someone who seems really super confident, dig, dig a bit deeper, you know, ask some substantial questions. Ask about examples or experiences or whatever, and and try to find out more. Yeah, I, 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 what I often teach people, or I try to teach people, is, you know, you can think of decision as a decision process and then a decision execution, and and during that decision process, that's when you don't want necessarily to have the to portray that they, you have the confidence and you know the answer, but maybe during that execution phase, and I know that there's there's subtleties here, but during the execution phase, once the decision is made, then it could be kind of kind of ruthlessly confident about uh, carrying it out because that's when people need to know that, okay, the decision's been made and we go forward in this rate. So I, that's kind of the way, the way I think of it as well. But um, yeah. boy, you're, boy, you're right about narcissist leaders. And this is one of the things that I was, as I was reading your book, you're, I was like, oh, wow, you're giving all these great great tips about how to appear more confident. And I was like, I hope, I hope the wrong person isn't reading this because maybe the last thing we need is another overconfident leader, you know? Well, you know, so this is, this is the thing about writing a book on influence. So Cialdini puts this warning in his books as well, um, which is I'm giving you tools, but the tools can be used for good or not good. You know, a hammer can be used to fix something or it can be used to hurt someone. So you can only offer these tools and hope that the right person uses them for yeah. good. And the more we understand about how people make decisions, the more powerful the tools become. Exactly. One of the things I think about Caldini and, and a lot of these methods is that um, there, there's a fine line between manipulation and persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always think that it gets into manipulation when if the, if the target of your speech act knew that knew the method that you were using would they be <laughs> not happy they knew it and you said oh fair enough that's a that's a fair persuasion technique but if they knew it and they went ah you you know you dastardly person you you got mm -hmm. me to do something i didn't want to do 
but yeah. I'm interested because you're an expert in this. Where where do you draw that line between persuasion and, and manipulation? Yeah, so I I actually think of manipulation as a type of persuasion. So persuasion influence is essentially when you when you create a change in someone else, when you change their attitude, their behavior, you change the outcome, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's a really broad category. There are lots of ways you can influence. Manipulation is one way in which you can do that. And the way I define manipulation is you are trying to control the person. Oh, okay. So that is your goal, is you're trying to control the person and their behavior or their thoughts. What I hope people use these tools for is you're trying to control an outcome, some kind of, you know, you're trying to create some kind of positive change. Let's, let's fix this product in our company, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so if that's your goal, then you can use all of these methods to try to get everyone else on board with your plan. But if your goal is actually to fix the product, if you then say to me, Constant, actually, I, I really don't agree with what you're proposing. I have another idea. I'm open to that. I'm yeah. willing to listen to that. And I'm willing to kind of take a third route or something like that, because my goal is not to control you. My, con my goal is to actually get us to that positive outcome. I think that that's a good distinction. I like that distinction, but I also think that sometimes to get to that outcome, we need to, con or we're often in a situation where we need to kind of decide whether we're going to control other people to try to get to that outcome. So I, I, yes. I, I you know, I think that it's, um, it's not as clean and neither is my manipulation, non-manipulation thing as clean as, as it could be. But I, I, mm. I think that I, I think if you're asking, if one is asking themselves that question, you're probably along a good road. Mm. Um, and, and it kind of brings me to, to the second part of the book, because as I said, one of the things I think that you're, the book is really interesting in is, is that when you start to talk about power or influence as, as a kind of contextual thing, mm. um, and because, you know, I, I, I view the, these kind of situations where power and influence only makes sense if we think about it within a social network. And, yeah. and so we, we, you know, power by definition is almost contextual. You can't have power without having some sort of influence on some sort of network and with multiple nodes and multiple communication paths, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and you use this, um, uh, a, a great framework that was originally developed by French and Raven. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, as a right. basis of social power. And I think, it, yeah. I thought it would just be interesting we, if we could work through some of these and, mm -hmm. um, the first three kind of, to me, kind of go into one kind of category and you tell me whether that makes sense or not. That's, he talks about, or they talk about coercive power, reward power, and legitimate power. Mm -hmm. And this is just like the power to punish or, or the power to reward and the, and, the, and the legitimate power, which comes from, I think, more or less your kind of formal title or position yeah. in the org chart. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you talk about, and I think is really true, and I'd love to, to kind of just go a little bit deeper into it, is when you're talking about reward power and coercive power, you make a very powerful point that this doesn't necessarily be mean like, you know, taking somebody's desk away or docking their pay or giving them more pay, but that this is like social praise or social disapproval is super important mm. in these things. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and your experience? And because I think that's somebody something that people really underestimate. 
Yeah, I think when we think about how do we influence someone, it's um, so reward and coercive power is reward power is they they do what you want them to do because you have something they want. So it's it's really thinking about what is it that they want, um, and and we often think very one dimensionally in thinking about oh it must be money it must be um, recognition or whatever. But for me, you know, having <laughs> raised a couple kids, um, I try to think more broadly about these things, and I have a really good relationship with one of my daughters, and she actually said to me that when she was during exam time, she was like, I really didn't want to study for this exam. But I kept thinking to myself, I want to make mommy proud. Like I want, mm. I want mommy to be pleased with me. And I was like, wow. Mm. Okay. Well, I, I wasn't trying to manipulate her or anything, but, but it clearly, you know, this, this idea of reward is something, if you have a really good relationship with someone um, and they respect you and they really look up to you, then then that does become a way of rewarding. Um, and, you know, the converse, of course, would be the punishment part. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because interesting because one of the things that um, when I when I talk to, when I'm trying to uh, do some leadership material on uh, myself, um, one of the things we talk a lot about is identify to whom the person wants to have praise, from whom does the person want to have praise or in front of whom do they want to look good yeah. or the, the 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 reverse in front of whom do they want to avoid looking bad right yeah um and and in those situations just the ability just to say to someone in the right context hey you know you did a really great job with this client you know i i've i think that this really demonstrates your you know kind of inherent ability to work across different stakeholders and I was really impressed with what you did, and I, I just wanted to let. So again, if it's the team they want to want to look in, good in front of, I, you say mm -hmm. that in front of the team. If it's you, you want they want to look in front of you. You say that to them personally. Some yeah. people want to look good in front of the client, so say that in front of the client. It can kind of amplify that power. Yes. But the but the it's just so costless in some way, mm -hmm. but so powerful. Um, and and I just um. I, I really like that part of the book. And, and do, can you think of other examples that, that you've seen uh, where this kind of power to either express disapproval or approval in a social setting uh, will create the kind of conditions for future influence? Well, it, it is just this idea of recognition. So right. in fact, there's a lot of um, work in um, the intrinsic motivation field that yeah. talks about how recognition is one of those intrinsic motivators. So if people feel recognized for their work, if they feel recognized for their effort, and this is, you know, not the not the recognition that one of my former bosses did where he would just go around saying, oh, thank you for your efforts. It's like that, yeah. that's completely meaningless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the really specific recognition where you say, oh, when you did that, that was really useful. It's like, oh, I've been seen, I've been noticed. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think there's a lot of foundation for this idea that recognition is a reward and it, it is motivating. Mm. And 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 the recognition on the positive side, again, an error I think people make is that they they describe positive things in very general terms. Oh, I think mm -hmm. you did a really good job there. That was really good. But let <laughs> yes. let me let me tell you all the things that I think you did wrong. 
<laughs> and the things that they did wrong are in great detail. Mm -hmm. Right on on slide four of your presentation, you know, you really lost everybody when you started talking about this, <laughs> uh, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you so you spend like 10 seconds saying, oh, good job on the presentation. But let me give you some constructive feedback and then, yeah. you know, five minutes of, of, of destructive feedback. Yeah. And the person and the person walks away. So, again, just simple things, making the positive things as as detailed as the negative mm -hmm. things can can go a long way. Yes. Absolutely. And I also find I always go out of my way to recognize good work, because if you can give the positive with no negatives, that's even more powerful. And if you can do a sort of drip drip over time, appreciating that person, then when when they make a mistake and you need to help them fix that mistake, they're coming at it with a different attitude. They're like, oh, well, Constance really supportive of me. I'll listen to what she's saying and I'm, I'll make that change. Hmm. No, absolutely. And so it's it's kind of what I found interesting in, in this part of the book. So it's not only that this is, you know, so so it's kind of good practice to do that at the time. All right. So mm -hmm. I, I, I understand that. But where I think that was interesting, what you're arguing is that you're setting yourself up for future. You can kind of cash that in in the future. Yes. So we had coercive power, reward power, legitimate power, and then you, and then the the next one in the kind of five dimensions is reference power. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how, how this applies because this is where I found your approach was was a little bit Machiavellian. I don't mean that in mm. a bad way, but it was kind of like I'm going to befriend this person, or I'm going to be. I'm going to manage my relationships within the organization in mm -hmm. such a way that I'm going to be able to pull those strings later yeah. uh, in order to exercise influence and power. Does that go against this idea of authenticity in any way? Or do you think that there's mm -hmm. not a tension there? I want to present it to make people aware that this is a base of power, but I don't really expect you to be spending all your work time thinking, oh, who, who should I be connecting with now? But it's more like you get invited to work on a committee. It's like, well, should I, should I serve on that committee? Oh, there's some pretty senior person on, senior people on that committee. Actually, it might be useful for me to make those connections. Yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of helps you make these decisions. Um, and the idea of referent power, it, it, it's a strange name, but, um, French and Raven meant it as sort of the person is willing to do what you say because they see you as some kind of role model, like some kind of referent, you know, they're referring to you. Okay. Um, now, which is a bit odd if you're using it in terms of um, upward influence. It's like, why would your boss have referent power? You know, why would you have referent power with your boss? And so the way I think of it in that context is more, um, you know, the way they de de describe it is they like working with you and they want to maintain a positive relationship with you. So I, al I always think of referent power in conjunction with expert power, because in a professional setting, oftentimes the two come together. So expert power is um, you're pretty smart and referent power is you're great to work with. So if you're if people think you're pretty smart and they think you're great to work with, then you've got some pretty strong human capital that you can draw on when you want to create change. Okay, so it's a it's not only is it 
does it help you get things done that then? But it's this idea of always kind of keeping an eye to the future, how it may be able to be uh, useful for you in, in in getting change done or influencing things towards the way that you would like it to be done. Is mm -hmm. that is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like, you know, someone invites you to coffee. Should I take the time? I'm really busy. Well, actually, it might be useful to make those connections. Hmm. So just kind of, in some ways, make sure that you get your network mm -hmm. right. Now, it, it's it's interesting you mentioned expert power. So again, this is where kind of straightforward, you have a lot of kind of expertise in your area. So people really uh, um, turn to you or you have influence because you're you're really good at it, right? You're, you have mm -hmm. expertise in that. And then yeah. you say it kind of, it kind of spills over um, yes. into other areas. And can you tell me a little bit about what it, how exactly does that work? So let's say somebody is like mm -hmm. super good in finance or super good, whatever it is. And I, I look up to that person and I say, boy, she's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem necessarily intuitive that I would think, oh, she's probably good at HR as well, or mm -hmm. maybe she's also good at, you know, uh, takeovers or, or whatever it might be. Do you see what I mean? So yep. how, is it kind of a, like a halo effect? Yeah, it's it's a halo effect. But I mean, you're absolutely right. There are limits to the halo effect. For example, when I first joined LSE, I've, I've been at LSE for 15 years now, and I established a reputation as a really good teacher. And so people started to see me as kind of the expert on teaching. So therefore I got invited to serve on the departmental strategy committee, which was a bit like, wait, I don't teach strategy. I haven't developed strategy, but, but they figured, you know, she's a really good teacher. She probably has some interesting things to say about our strategy. So there's, there's a, there's a halo effect in that sense, though it's it's not completely disconnected. Okay. Um, but it's also an, another example. So I work with a lot of nonprofits um, like UN agencies, and sometimes someone gets hired into a UN agency from having worked in a for-profit organization that is either a consulting firm or, um, you know, one of those, one of those um, organizations where the agency looks to for advice. So now mm. I join the UN agency. I have some expert power because I've just come from that consulting firm. So it's it's that kind of thing um, that okay. people feel like you. It's worth listening to what you have to say. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so you're you're really good at one thing, and that's going to give you some power, perhaps just to the uh, adjacent areas as well. Yeah. So, my there's limits to it; it can't go forever. But you know, this yeah. kind of general, this person knows what they're talking about, and and they're probably they may may well know what they're talking about in other areas. And yeah. again, this can be this can be a little bit dangerous um, in that mm -hmm. um, you know you you get misdirected. Um, power. So for example, during the pandemic, one of the things that was a, a pet peeve of mine, I must say over and over again, is when the doctor said, you know, we should, we need to follow the medical evidence. We need to follow the science. And I, I would always like scream at the television and my wife would say, have to say, settle down, you know, you're going to hurt yourself. Um, but um, so my, my point here is that here you have somebody who's super expert in the science, super, you know, a doctor, mm -hmm. a, a epidemiologist understands all of these things. But at the end of the day, all they can do is say, 
if we follow this policy, this is what our likely outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. And if we follow this other policy, this is the other likely outcome. Yes. They don't have any expertise in saying which policy we should follow. There's no scientifically best policy. It's just their job. Their job is to give us as the citizenry or the polity that their best guess at the consequences of our choices but they don't have any they don't have any kind of privileged position so when people said we should adopt the policy that follows the science i always found that this is kind of a meaningless thing and this is kind of a dangerous mm -hmm. dangerous extension of their expertise in epidemiology to what kind of trade-offs are we willing or able to make in the society as far as these yes. other dimensions does that make sense Yes, because this comes back to exactly what we were saying earlier about how you can use these tools to help yourself, but you also have to protect yourself against them. You know, mm. narcissists are really good at looking confident. Well, doctors have authority. They are much more likely to be listened to whether or not what they're saying makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, you can use this as a, a way of helping yourself be more influential, but you also at the same time have to be aware that these are ways that we ourselves can be misled. And then uh, just to, in, a, in a kind of follow on to that, one of the things that I found that was kind of, um, when I read it, I thought, oh, I, I don't know, does Constant really uh, really think this? But I, 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 cause I, so I'm dying to ask you, 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 you mm -hmm. put forward the kind of brag buddy idea Yes, to kind of like prime people in the organization to, yep. uh, you know, um, kind of sing your praises for mm -hmm. you. Um, mm -hmm. And I always kind of thought, OK, well, definitely one wants that to happen kind of naturally. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's always good if somebody uh, says, wow, this person, you know, Constant, she's really great. She's a great teacher. If you want somebody to teach, boy, she's the person to go. I, you know, I've never seen mm -hmm. anybody like her in the classroom. To say to that person, hey, if you're if you came to me and say, hey, Matt, can you know, I'd like you to say this. Is that did I get that right? Is that is that what you were advising or it's so it's specifically advice for women okay. because women face this um, this kind of double bind where um, you are expected to be uh, sort of you know, you're expected to be assertive and take charge as a leader, but you're a woman. And so you're also expected to be nice and friendly and all of these other things. Right. Um, and bragging about yourself, like telling people what you've accomplished is not part of that. It's like, oh, well, you, you obviously think a lot of yourself. Um, whereas if a man did the same behavior, it's not as, he doesn't have as much of a, you know, it's not necessarily looked down on. Right. Of course, of course, he's self-confident because, you know, that's who exactly. he is. Yeah, um. exactly. It's seen as, as oh, he's really confident. Um, and so this is actually a tip specifically for women who are having trouble getting their accomplishments out there. Okay. And it's an agreement that you have with another woman in the same organization where you kind of just help each other out. Okay. And you you kind of, especially like when you're talking to the boss or to more senior people, it's like, hey, have, have you heard what Sarah did the other day? Or, you know, something gotcha. like that. Yeah. So that Sarah herself doesn't have to brag. Perfect. So that that makes that makes uh, a perfect sense to me. And, and it's a perfect kind of segue to the kind of third part of the book where we take this kind of contextual view of power and influence and then overlay 
a couple other kind of macro structures. Maybe that's, I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the right way to think about it, but, and, and, and you have a really nice uh, chapter on gender and a really nice chapter on culture. So maybe we can start with the gender piece because, because that's what we started talking about. And, mm -hmm. and um, you, uh, you cite some work that looks at um, something as a, a leader prototype, a dominant leader prototype, international dominant leader prototype. Mm -hmm. And they have certain characteristics about them and ambition and competitiveness and skilled at business matters, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I found was interesting is the the characteristics we have of kind of this dominant prototype of a leader aren't gendered per se, mm. right? But it seems like it's mediated through a kind of um, stereotype of on, on the gender versus the different cultures, what we might be in. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So it just is harder for women to show those things without falling, so without being kind of orthogonal to their stereotypical yeah. part. Is that right? Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. So you can think about it. Um, the words I like to use are agentic and communal. So okay. agentic is the male stereotype, which is about being assertive, decisive, in charge. You're, you're the agent. Okay. Communal is... Um, you care about the community, you're caring, you're friendly, you're, you know, all of those things. So one is the, the, the problem with these gender stereotypes is there's a prescriptive element to it in that men should be agentic and women should be communal. And if they behave counter stereotypically, so if men are too communal, you know, think of, um, say male nurses or men who want to do these kind of caring types of jobs, mm. uh, men who are very humble. And, or on the other hand, women who are too agentic, you know, who are very strong and outspoken, both groups get what's called backlash, which is they're perceived in a negative light. And so that's, that's the challenge there is, um, many of the characteristics of leadership fall under the agentic category, not the communal category. And so when Virginia Shine did her research, what she did was she said, there were three surveys. One was, what are the characteristics of a good manager? And then what are the characteristics um, of a typical man? What are the characteristics of a typical woman? And essentially what they found was that the good manager matched the typical man, but not the typical woman. Okay. And this was, a, what, was it across genders as well? Did women have the same mm -hmm. perception? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've all grown up in the same cultures. Okay. So it, it's, it's, it's a reflection of the kind of old fashioned patriarchy in the society that these, these things are seen as congruent. So the, the characteristics that are most associated with strong leadership also are these agentic at slash male uh, uh stereotypes and, yes. and and so any woman who because you could look at the characteristic and say well they aren't necessarily they aren't gender specific but to do all of those things goes against a gender stereotype so women are kind of going up against against the stream all the time yeah okay and um, and and what what I found really interesting is you you then introduce at the very end this idea of uh, uh, androgyny, mm -hmm. and that and that there's some um, there's some research that that suggests or that shows that 
maybe the androgynous leaders are, are potentially the most effective. Now, maybe you could tell us what you mean by androgyny, because you make a difference between the psychological kind of versus the biological uh, meaning of mm. that term. So can we can we dive into this androgyny, the, the, what it is and, and how yeah. it can be effective? So I think what might be helpful is if you picture the extremes. So if you've got the extreme masculine, it's that leader who is like, do what I say, you know, don't talk back. Come on, we're going to do this. Hurry up. You know, that, that kind of really forceful, aggressive, competitive. If you've got the extreme at the other end, the extreme feminine, it's like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Are you, how are you feeling? Did, did you have a good weekend? You know, mm. that, that kind of um, extreme. So androgyny means you're somewhere in the middle. You're neutral um, in, in terms of those characteristics. So you're solution oriented, you're, um, you're conscientious, you're reliable, you know, these are, these are fairly neutral things, but you are not excessively dominant, aggressive, nor excessively yielding and warm. And so that, that's what it means by androgyny. It's like kind of walking that middle line. Okay, so so it, it's what so the andro is it like your if if you have a scale of one to ten, so you had that kind of that you had the two ends of the distribution. Mm -hmm. um, would you say like the androgynous leader? Because I I was thinking in the in the book it was like the androgynous leader is in one that's at five and five, you know, kind of in the middle. They they mm -hmm. they score high on both. Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, yes. Yes, I would okay. say that's right. That's right. And and one of the things that's interesting, I think, I was I was trying to think about why why that would be so effective. And one of the things I think is interesting is that it it it, it does not allow um, the out categorization of the of the uh, non fitting uh, stereotype member. So let, let me try. I, that probably didn't make any sense. Let me try to <laughs> to, uh, to dis, uh, disentangle that. So. Um, let's say you have a, a a female, a woman leader who's you know super ambitious, really competitive. So they've they've taken on a kind of agentic, or or they are agentic, whether they mm -hmm. take it on or not. They, they that's legitimately who it is. What what we as as you know from stereotype research, the way we maintain stereotypes is we we say okay, I still have the same stereotype. It's true, but this isn't. She's not really a woman. She's yeah. kind of a she's she's mannish or something yeah. like this. Exactly. Um, and so, um, in the same way, we say yes. We can we we can think of it out in the reverse. Although I think it's less common um, with with men saying that they're they're uh, feminine, but it, mm -hmm. it can happen. But I yes. guess if you're if you're high on both, yeah, then it's it's much harder to say oh they're yeah. It destroys the stereotype category rather than allowing an easy kind of out categorization. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and that's absolutely right. Because you are, if you're high on both, you're you're essentially balancing both sides. And and this is there is a nice piece of um, qualitative research that interviewed very senior women um, in these in these American companies, and they broke down their behaviors into this agentic and communal. And what they showed was that these women were balancing both at the same time. So they were being, for example agentic in that they were very demanding of their team members, 
but they were also being communal in that they would provide those team members with support um, and coaching so that they could meet those demands. Yeah, and I would say, uh, regardless of the gender, that in my in my experience, the most successful leaders are able to do that. And you're and you're back to your uh, original uh, statement about the best predictor of a successful leader is their ability to adapt. And so yeah. this is kind of like you have the more tools you have, and the more and the more adept you are at using them at the right moment, the better you're going to be. And so if you're kind of single dimensional, agentic, or communal, it, it, it might work in a certain specific situation, but then it's not going to work going forward. Exactly. And, um, and I, I think that it seems to me, particularly if you, uh, in, in, with increased uncertainty, I mean, there's a lot of industries that seem to me that in the past, you know, it was relatively straightforward strategy and it was all about efficiency and it was about engineering efficiency into the structure. And you could almost get away with this kind of command and control type leadership style and these kind of mm -hmm. things. But as we become more and more uncertain and innovation becomes a, such a key part of any company's survival, um, it seems to me that those companies that get stuck in those, uh, on those more hierarchical or, or agentic type of frameworks are, are, are in a kind of uh, existential peril. Yes. And I think the good news for women is that this concept of transformational leadership, so the model of transformational leadership emphasizes the communal side of leadership, which is coaching, facilitating conversations, you know, being participative, that sort of stuff. Um, it's a very, it's, it's being shown over and over again to be a very effective model of leadership. And the more we buy into this transformational leadership, the more it will help all of us be more balanced leaders. And the more balanced we are, the more it opens up the door for women to be both agentic and communal. Uh, great. Sounds sounds great. And and it's interesting to me. I mean, this is where I was just wondering, you know, this old question is leadership, you know, are leaders born or, or are they mm -hmm. made or, you know, whatever. Um, and I found this was kind of interesting. I, I would guess, and it's just a guess, I don't know any research that looks at this. I would guess that this ability to be able to be flexible across these different leadership styles, mm -hmm. I I know it's teachable, but I think it's hard. And I think when we say um, a natural born leader in some ways, I mean, again, it's it's a bit like an athlete, you know, that they have a natural ability and, and anybody can be trained up to a certain ability. But I wonder if this ability to be genuine and authentic in both communal skills and uh, agentic skills is something that is that somebody is just born with or not. I, I don't know. It's uh, do you know any research that looks at that question? Mm. Well, so when I took my personality psychology classes, I remember, um, and, and I could be remembering this wrong, but I, I, I seem to remember a, a, a number of about 30% of our personality is inherited, hmm. which means 70% of who we are is something that we learn over time. And this is based on studies of twins, you know, identical twins. So if 70% of who we are is learned over time, then actually, I think there's a lot more hope for people who might be like, oh, well, that doesn't come naturally to me. Well, you know, if you really want it to come naturally to you, you can work at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I, I think 
First of all, I, I mean, I'm, I, this is a, kind of the methodology method, methodologist in me. I'm always, uh, you know, I get mm -hmm. a little bit worried when somebody says 30 and 70 because I'm not, mm -hmm. I always, I instantly say, well, it's conditional on all kinds of things. And I'd want to yeah, know what, it is. what, which, which, which task you're thinking about and how did you come up with 70 and 30, et cetera. But yeah. I, I, I agree with you in the, in the, in the general point, definitely that we are, um, we have a lot of plasticity in our minds and, and mm -hmm. how we do things. I think we probably run up against some limits and it's much easier for some people to learn things than other people. Um, but absolutely it's worth the effort to try to teach these things. Otherwise, um, you know, you and I would be in a different pro profession, I would guess. Yeah. But, but also, you know what, you know what I think really helps people is failure. Um, mm. If you go through life succeeding in everything, you're not going to think that you need to change. If you finally fail at something, you're gonna go, oh, wait a minute, maybe I need to actually do something differently. And then you're much more open. And then amazingly, suddenly you're much more able to change. You know what frustrates me the most is when a student says to me, well, that's just the way I am. Hmm. I can't change yeah. because everybody can change you just need the motivation and that's that's why i said failure is a great way to motivate yourself once you fail and you realize the way i'm doing things actually needs to be adjusted that is a great way to motivate yourself to change yeah or it didn't work in that situation this 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 way i've been doing things forever and it always worked great uh, mm -hmm. there's something that went wrong there exactly so the other the other macro um, um, kind of thing that you explore in the book towards the end, and it comes right after the gender session section, and of course they're interrelated, but it has to do with culture. And um, as someone who teaches uh, again in the same sorts of areas you do in negotiation things like this, culture is always a really tricky one for me. Mm -hmm. um, and um, before we talk a little bit about the specifics of your argument in the book, I just I want I wanted to know if you could help me out because when i come to teach culture i always get a bit confused because i never know which culture i'm i'm supposed to be talking about so um you know, what i mean by that is you know i i i think of you know you and i are both originally from the states and you know if somebody says americans are like this my instant reaction is well america's for where and what are you talking about mm -hmm. and it seems that the more you know about a country the more you re you realize that the heterogeneity in the cultural uh, along cultural dimensions within that country can be quite large, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then not only that, you get the heterogeneity across different industries. So, yeah. you know, if you're working in um, uh, the automotive industry, for example, in Germany, or you're working at the you know tech startup world, it's going to be a completely different culture. And then even within the same industry, if you look like the difference between the cultures within different companies, like the, the if you look at the difference in culture, let's say between BMW and Ford, for example, mm -hmm. right now, a huge difference in culture. Yeah. And then at the individual level, you know, you have somebody that says, yes, I'm German. I'm living in Mexico. I'm married to a Spanish, um, a Spanish woman and um, our children uh, are learning uh, Chinese. Mm -hmm. And you're like, so, so I always wonder what culture are we talking about when you, when you talk about, you know, we have to make sure that we adapt to the culture with we're, we're in, yep. in order to, in order to optimize our kind of chance of influencing. Yeah. So 
when I talk about culture, I often remind people, how did we draw this conclusion that, for example, Americans are uh, more individualistic than Chinese? Mm -hmm. Well, we draw this conclusion by sending out a survey to hundreds or thousands of Americans and hundreds or thousands of Chinese, and then we take the average. So there's always a bell curve. And when essentially when we're when we're comparing the two cultures, we're saying the average American, the average Chinese, but there are tons of people who are not average, who are at the extremes of the bell curve. Yeah. And so we have to take all of this with a big grain of salt. And when I talk about culture, I, I like to use the metaphor of a lens. Hmm. So when you're thinking about people from different cultures, think of them as wearing different lenses. Because this then allows us to have multiple lenses. I've got the lens of the culture that I grew up in, the lens of the culture that I, where I had my first job, the lens of the culture, you know, of my parents, you know, all of these things, which means that everyone is unique in the way they're seeing the world. Yeah. And so ultimately, understanding about cultural differences gives us a starting point. But we have to when we meet an individual, we have to be open-minded and be willing to see that person for who they are, not who we think they are. Hmm. Um, and the way I, what I think is useful about understanding these cultural dimensions is to then see them as individual differences. So this idea of power difference, power distance, if we see it as an individual difference, then you're dealing with this other person, you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if they're on the high or low end of power distance. Because if they're at the high end of power distance, I need to be more deferential and more respectful. If they're at the low end, then I can just tell them what I think. And again, thinking from your position of, of, of influencing up, right? So mm -hmm. as, exactly. as, as reporting to somebody. Exactly. One of the things that I think is interesting as well when we, we think about culture, and I, I, I think you're right. It, it seems to me that that's the way to do it. Think about a distribution. The person's on that distribution somewhere, and I'm just trying to figure out what this individual is like. Because I th I think sometimes, particularly in intercultural situations, often often it's a fine line. So I, I'd love to hear your opinion about this. My sense is, having operated in lots of different cultures, to the extent that one has the knowledge in order to start to change one's behavior to be consistent with the cultural norms of the society or the culture that they're in, mm -hmm. the minute you start to do that, you lose your ability to play the foreigner card and mm -hmm. just say, I'm really sorry. I just don't, I, I, I don't mean to be offensive. Please excuse me. And then, and there's this kind of, you lose that ability if you signal too much knowledge of the culture in which you're operating. Mm. Do, do you, do you find that as a, as an issue? I think there's, you also have to be sensitive to who can play the foreigner card mm. because there are power differences here. So if, if someone from, um, let's say someone from the Philippines is working in the United States they can't really play the foreigner card. They're gonna be expected to adjust to the culture. If someone from the United States is working in the Philippines, maybe they can play the foreigner card because there's there's a, you know, there's a hierarchy here with these cultures. Okay. Um, I think the best way to go about it and one that one that will kind of help you be more influential because people will want to work with you is to find that middle ground. 
So you're not expected to completely go native. Like that would be inauthentic and weird. Hmm. But you do need to find, so I heard this story about a German manager who was working in China. And the German manager was very used to giving very direct feedback, you know, almost painfully direct feedback. But yeah. in China, that would be insulting. Yeah. And people are very, very roundabout. And so he got himself a coach, he got himself a local coach, and he found a middle ground where he could be a bit more direct than the locals, but yeah. a bit less brutal than his natural style. And I think that's what we're really aiming for here. One of the reasons you need to do that, I think, is because you can't, a lot of your cultural responses, even when you know that they're cultural bound, it doesn't mean you don't have the emotional response to it. Yeah. So even if I knew the German guy, he's just being a German guy and he's telling me absolutely what he thinks with, with completely unfiltered. And I know that culturally at the same time, it doesn't mean that it doesn't make me feel really uncomfortable. Exactly. Um, and so if I want to avoid doing that, then maybe as the boss, I, I figure out a different way to give that feedback um, in a way that I still, you know, don't, I, I'm still authentic to myself, but I'm avoiding that kind of involuntary negative response that I'm going to get from the other party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're starting to run out of time a little bit. What what I'd like to do, maybe just as a summary here, because one of the things for for those of you who who get the book, one of the things I think is really great is that you 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 have all of these kind of tips throughout the whole book, and you know they're 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 very practical, easy things that people can do. So if what are what are some kind of if you could think of three or four things, you know, kind of words of wisdom. What what are the what are the things that people get wrong the most? Or what, what are the things that, that you would urge them to try if they're if they are not being as effective as they want to be um, kind of managing up, influencing up? It depends on your personality. But for me, what I got wrong the most was I just wouldn't try because I would I would think to myself, oh, yeah, they're not going to be willing to listen or it's, it's just not going to work. And so I would talk myself out of it. And so for me, that was that was the thing that I got wrong the most was I didn't even bother trying. And nowadays, I at least try. Um, and and I think that's that's really important. But the other thing I also think that's really important is that level of self-awareness. Like, what is it that you need to work on? It's hard to know without trying to get some feedback. Um, and sometimes the feedback doesn't have to come directly from the other person. It, it, I actually heard about one manager where she got her, one of her team members to videotape her chairing a meeting so that she could then watch the videotape and essentially give herself feedback. Right. So it's, it's figuring out what am I doing well and what am I not doing well and what do I need to work on? Well, watching one's own self on a video can be absolutely the most painful thing in the world <laughs> it is yes somebody gave me the advice once when i was first starting teaching you know um you know videotape yourself see see what you do in the room and i think it took me about two or three years to recover from this sight of this crazy <laughs> person walking around flailing their arms around it was just like oh my god who is this crazy person so uh, anyway um take that last piece of advice with a word of caution that you made <laughs> Hard, hard to watch. 
Actually, you know, one more thing. Um, let's not forget about the help that our friends and family can give us. So one of the things that I find really helps me, my, my husband tends to be a little bit impatient. Um, and over the time that we've been together, I've learned to, when I want to tell him about something, I've learned to be very succinct to the point, And I notice, has he paid attention to me the whole time or has his attention wandered off? And if, I, I can tell if his attention has not wandered off, I've been successful, which means I'm getting better at that skill. So, you know, you can do a lot of practicing with your friends and family. You mentioned a study in the book that I thought was super interesting where you can look at uh, eye contact and the amount of eye contact you have as a speaker versus a listener. Mm -hmm. You can work out power ratios. Can you yep. just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is um, Davidio's research where he looks at the ratio between looking, um, looking while speaking versus looking while listening, where looking while speaking conveys it, it's sort of the more powerful person will look while speaking and the less powerful person will look at the other person while listening. And so if you if you compare the ratios, usually you can, um, you know, how much am I looking while speaking versus looking while listening? And you could probably kind of instinctively translate that to your everyday life. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the really senior boss who you're talking to them and they're kind of looking at their phone or they're looking away. Whereas you're talking to a very junior person and they're looking at you with all their attention. Absolutely. And, and a piece of advice to the bosses out there, it's better not to spend any time with someone than to spend time being distracted. So we, yeah. we when you're coaching, uh, when I'm coaching people, you know, it's it's sit down with somebody and give them your intention and, and gaze for two minutes is better than having 10 minutes while you're constantly looking at the phone. And so it's a, it, I, I think we're very sensitive to that as humans, this, mm -hmm. uh, this, this kind of idea of who's, who's attending to us at a time. And it, and it must be related to power as, as the study showed. Yep. All right. Listen, last last thing, and then and then I'll get you out of here. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Um, we ask all, each one of the guests, a uh, recent book, TV show, movie, fiction, nonfiction, music, whatever. What's something that you've been uh, listening to or watching or reading that you'd recommend to our listeners? So there was a book I read recently called Gut. And this is all about our digestive system. Because so I'm in my late fifties and therefore my health is becoming much more top of mind. And I think this is really, if we can take care of our own health, it has a very positive effect on the rest of our lives. Um, and one of my daughters has a lot of digestive issues and I've kind of had them on and off throughout my life. And this book was just so interesting and revealing about how can we take care of ourselves and what is the right way to, you know, what are the right things to eat and everything. I just think we need to focus more on our health. Right. There you go. Gut. And uh, the <laughs> the, uh, the citation will be in the show notes. So Hans and Locke, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.